This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The idea of social justice parenting is really the antidote to this fear-based parenting. I think The more we really want to just protect our children and not having these conversations, you are really unintentionally leaving a lot of other kids unprotected. And so I think the idea of social justice parenting is thinking about everybody's children as your children, right? That was Dr. Tracy Baxley on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of ACT Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the upcoming book, Work, Parent, Thrive. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of ACT Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot POTC. ZocDoc.com slash POTC. Psychologists Off the Clock is proud to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. Praxis is the premier provider of evidence-based training for mental health professionals. 
And here at Psychologist Off the Clock, we are huge fans of Praxis. One of the things I love most about Praxis is they offer both live and on-demand courses. So if you're really looking for that live interaction with other people who are taking the course, you can get that. Or if you have a busy schedule and you need something that you can just kind of click onto whenever you have time, they offer that as well. And every course I have ever taken from Praxis has really been of such value to me. I get questions a lot from clinicians who are looking for ACT training or other types of trainings. And Praxis is my go-to place that I send people no matter what level they are because they have really good beginner trainings for people who have no experience. And they also have terrific advanced trainings on different topics and just people who want to keep building their skills. You can go to our website and get a coupon for the live trainings by going to our offers page at offtheclockpsych.com slash sponsors. And we'll hope to see you there. Hi, everyone. This is Debbie, and I have an episode today for you on social justice parenting with Dr. Tracy Baxley, who is like my new parenting hero. So I was so delighted to have the chance to talk with her and do this interview and and bring you this information. And I'm here with Jill today to just talk a little bit about social justice parenting in our own lives and what's ahead in the interview. And so let me turn it over to you, Jill, to hear some of your thoughts about the conversation today after after you've listened to it. Well, I found this interview to be so incredibly helpful, like truly actionable, like immediately actionable. And gosh, I just walked away feeling so much gratitude and appreciation for Dr. Baxley. And it's funny because Yael and I were just talking the other day about how much we appreciate this podcast because there have been so many guests, so many topics that have helped us to truly make positive behavioral changes in our lives. And this episode with Tracy Baxley was was really no exception to the point where like immediately after I listened to the episode, I started doing things differently. And so you you talk later in the episode about an example where one of your daughters asked you a difficult question, you know, kind of a social justice related question, and you weren't sure you had handled it right. And I thought, oh my gosh, I had a really similar experience when my son came home and he asked me, what does the N-word mean? He said the word and said, what does this word mean? And I went, oh my God, like I just had this panic response, like this fight, flight, freeze, where I was filled with fear. I didn't know what to do. I got really scared that he would say this word and cause harm to someone. And my instant reaction was just sort of like, oh my God, you can't say that. You know, that this is a bad word and this is offensive and you can't say, and I just didn't know the right thing to do. And listening to this episode made me realize I didn't handle that well, which I knew already at the time, but it gave me a path forward for how to do things differently and the idea that it's never too late. And I immediately went to the internet when I finished the episode and I looked up the history of the word and tried to better understand why it's offensive so that I could articulate that to to my kids and have a plan for as soon as they come home from school today to say, hey, you know, I was thinking about when you asked me this question and like basically have a redo. And the way that Tracy Baxley presented this in the interview, like I said, it was it was accessible, it was actionable, it was unintimidating, like it really gave me this path forward to have a more useful, helpful, productive conversation with my kids about 
you know, a topic that really matters, but that where my own fear got in the way. And I think that really happens to people a lot. We have the best intentions, but we sort of freeze because of our fear. I love that example, how it was so immediate, Jill. And also, I really think that, you know, it's hard out there for us parents who are doing the right thing. And I think the truth is these kinds of conversations happen all the time, especially as your kids get older and they ask so many questions. And I think that there's just so many times like that where we don't know what to say. We freeze up. We're trying to do our best, you know, to be good parents and to raise decent human beings. But sometimes we really don't know what to do. And it's funny because that example that I give in the episode after the fact, I felt a little bit sheepish about releasing it because I think I want to know how to handle these situations well and how to really turn these conversations into a teachable moment and something really meaningful. And I think the truth is we all probably have moments as parents where we don't know what to say or it touches on an issue that really gets our own fear system activated and we might panic or we might botch it and we can always go back and continue these conversations over time. I think what one of the things, there's so many things I appreciate about Dr. Baxley, but one of them is just how is just how she's so compassionate and forgiving. And she really looks at this as an ongoing process and a conversation and an exploration. And I'm I think that this episode has really been helpful to me too, ever since I read the book and talked to her. And I think it's going to just really help me as a parent moving forward. I could not agree more. And I love that she talks about the difference. You guys have a conversation about the difference between kindness and social justice and how that lies in action. And that piece just really, really stuck with me. And I'm going to take that forward with me. And like I said, I'm I'm just incredibly grateful. And I think people are going to get so much that they can so much out of this episode that they can actually apply in their in their everyday lives. Well, we hope so. We hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm very excited to introduce my guest today. Dr. Tracy Baxley is an associate professor of education at Florida Atlantic University. She's a consultant, parenting coach and speaker an educator for over 30 years with degrees in child development, elementary education, and curriculum and instruction. She specializes in diversity and inclusion, anti-bias curriculum, and social justice education. Her terrific book that we're going to talk about today is called Social Justice Parenting, How to Raise Compassionate, Anti-Racist, Justice-Minded Kids. And she also has some courses online. One is for white mothers who want to be allies for the Black community and raise anti-racist children, and another for parents who want to implement social justice parenting practices in their families' daily lives. So Tracy, welcome. I'm really delighted that you're joining us on Psychologists Off the Clock. Thank you, Debbie. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, you're most welcome. I really appreciate it. Um, One of the things that I really love most about your book is how you share personal stories to illustrate the concepts of your book. And you are, of course, a parent yourself and have had so many experiences related to social justice and making your own parenting decisions. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your family, which is an interesting one, and why this work is personal for you. Yes, I am a mother of five. I have uh, 
children. I have one daughter and four sons ranging right now, ranging for ages from ages 22 down to 12. So we're in different kind of stages, right, of, of the parenting um, process. <laughs> and um, I'm also in a uh, multiracial marriage. My husband is white and I am African-American. And so, you know, we have to navigate what that looks like in our home versus what that looks like in the world, you know, how we raise our children to know who they are, um, be confident in their identity. Um, I'm, as a black woman, it's really important that I raise my kids knowing what it's like to be black in the world. Um, we also give our kids kind of the free reign to identify, self-identify how they want in the home. Um, and they all identify differently. And so we, that's part of kind of our normal conversation um, in our house. And part of that um, finding identity, being safe, being who you are, uh, being accepted in the world is p- part of the work that I do in general. And certainly it inspired a lot of the things that are in the book. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting that your children, you just have these very open conversations about things like identity and that your children is each navigating the, those kinds of questions in their own unique ways. I think it yeah. really ties to the concepts here, right? Exactly. Yes. And it, it, this, uh, the idea of, you know, accepting your kids or who they are and how they see themselves. And um, like, for example, my daughter identifies as a black woman. Um, she doesn't really identify as biracial. She'll say she's biracial, but if you ask her, she on her driver's license or whatever those things are, she identifies as a, as a black, uh, woman. And, um, I have, um, some of my sons who identify as biracial. Um, they don't feel like they don't want to choose one or the other. So they, they, they identify as both. Um, so I, I totally accept whatever they feel comfortable with in terms of their own identity. But um, again, you know, as a black woman in a racialized world, I am very upfront and honest and direct with my kids about how the world will see them and the importance of knowing how to navigate in that space as well. Well, I would really like to bring to life for listeners who maybe themselves hasn't personally experienced racism. I think, you know, you're a parent and you know, an African-American woman with, uh, you know, biracial children. And I'm just curious. I mean, I think one of the things that was really powerful to me reading your book as a white woman myself was just about how you have to teach your own children about some of the, the horrible things that they will face or, you know, probably have faced and, and likely will face down the road. And so I was just wondering if you could share your thoughts about what you've had to teach your children to equip them to deal with that, that maybe someone like me hasn't. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts on that. Um, the first is, you know, the common common idea is the talk that Black families have in their home, right? They call it the talk, which is really when we're educating our kids how to move in, in society, how they, to move around in the world to stay safe. But it also includes the things about uh, being proud of being in the skin you're in, you know, really talking about the joys of being Black or, uh, you know, th- what our ancestors have endured for them to have the opportunities that they have right now. So um, I think often when people think about the talk, it's always like kind of positioning our kids to be on guard, but it's also positioning our children to really be excited and love uh, who they are. 
So it, it's those, you know, the, the combination of both parts of those, both sides of those coins, right? As we are raising our children. And I also think it's important, um, and now more than ever, I guess, you know, we're starting to think about this a little bit differently that it's just not the responsibility of Black parents to give this same um, kind of idea about the world to their Black children. But we're, we're seeing more and more that it's really important that white fam- families like yours really are proactive in saying, this is the way our world sometimes works. Um, sometimes we may not be at the short end of that stick, right? But how do we then start to navigate in a way that we're supporting, that we're aligning with, that we are, um, are, are aware that these things are going on around us and what is our responsibility as a family? So I think the idea of the talk should be happening in all of our families uh, if we're going to really kind of change the way that we show up and care more deeply about one another. I love that. I mean, A, that it's not, it's everyone's responsibility. And also just what you said, I I think about, you know, it's not just (laughs) fear-based. Absolutely not. It's also very strengths-based. And that actually is a perfect segue. I wanted to talk to you about belonging. We've We've had an episode on the podcast with my colleague, Meg McKelvey, about belonging, and you have a whole chapter about that. Um, you write that all children need to belong, and belonging is a universal fundamental motivation for all people. I was wondering if you could just say a bit more about belonging. like, And what do you want listeners to understand about belonging specifically when it comes to people of color or other marginalized groups? Yeah, I think we... Well, like you said, belonging is, is, it's just a human right, right? It's something, if we look at, I always go back to Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs. And when you look at where that is, it's, it's really one of the basic needs that we need to do to ever get to that idea of self-actualization, right? To get to the point where we feel capable of, of meeting our hopes and our dreams. Um, and if we're not creating these spaces of belonging, especially in our own homes, right? Starting in our own homes, our kids don't know what that that feels like, right? To really feel secure and feel safe uh, um, as they as they go out into the world. And the more that we can create this sense of belonging in our homes, really, the more um, our children will find it a, a normal way to feel and a normal way to be, and be able to spread that into the world when they when they become um, adults and they're they are. Um, they are encountering other people in different situations. And I think um, the idea of belonging, especially when we talk about, uh, if we're looking at it from a racial lens, um, a lot of uh, children of color um, don't, they feel a lack of belonging often, right? In in, in various spaces in the world. And and I think um, it all starts in our own homes. It all starts with us really, creating safe spaces at home, creating environments where our children will be safe spaces for others in the world. And I think if we don't start really thinking about that in terms of just the basic way that we treat each other, um, we're going to keep, I think we're right now we're in a spiraling um, place in our, in our, in our country where we are caring less uh, about other people um, and we're almost in this kind of ego selfish cocoon, you know, where we're living, we're leaving people who 
may not have the same opportunities, who may not have the same um, privileges really in the world. We're leaving them out to fend for themselves. Um, and I think it's a really bad and dangerous space for us as a country to be. Um, and I think if we start thinking about how we are creating spaces of belonging in all the parts of our lives, I think we could start to change really some of the things, some the, the divides that we are finding ourselves in in our country. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. This country has been breaking my heart lately. And it's really, I think your point about healing, you know, it has to happen at all levels, including in the families and starting with the kids. Um, and I love in your book, I mean, just to highlight this again, because we already even talked about it a little bit with your own children and kind of letting them each be their own unique person with their own identity. I love the part in the book about parenting the children we have. And just there's so much pressure in the world, too, I think, for, you know, kids to be molded a certain way or, you know, could you speak a little bit about accepting our children for who we are and how what are some ways you do that with your own kids? Yeah. And, and that's it sounds obvious. Right. <laughs> but it's, it's sometimes it's very difficult. I mean, like you said, with the outside pressures to um, for our kids to look a certain way, to achieve certain things, to be involved in certain things. Um, and sometimes we are putting what we think is best or the things that we didn't. Ha- I mean, that was what I did. You know, the things that I didn't have in my life uh, growing up, I wanted to give that stuff to my children. And um, it came at a, at a price, especially for my daughter, who's the oldest. You know, I've learned through her to not do certain things as, as my younger boys are growing up. But I think uh, and I had a very kind of great middle class uh, childhood, really lot, filled with lots of love, lots of things. Um, but, you know, we always want to do more or better, what we, what we consider better, right, for our children than maybe what we had. And part of that was giving my kids more opportunities with, uh, you know, music lessons and more sports and more uh, tutoring for higher class, all those things. And um, the idea that all my kids would play sports was kind of a given, right? My husband and I played lots of sports growing up and we had one, our, our, our third child who had no interest in team sports. And it was after years of trying to push him to play soccer and all the things we realized that's not who he was. Um, and so I had to relearn who he was, you know, and spend time with him um, and asking him curious questions so that I could get to know how to support him. And so I think sometimes our kids are interested in things that we are not interested in or that we don't know anything about. And we have to learn how to parent who they are instead of trying to get them to be who we thought they would be. I mean, another thing too, you know, I have one child with ADHD, one child who battles uh, with uh, depression, another uh, son who has uh, was diagnosed with OCD. And those are also things that you don't think your kids will have to experience. And so as a mom, I had to recognize those labels as not something negative, but as a way to see how I can help my my children to grow and be the best um, people that they can be with, with who they are, um, any neurological differences that they may have. And so I think accepting who our kids are and then educating ourselves of how we can um, show up for them in ways to um, help them grow 
And I think that goes back to that belonging piece too, right? You know, my son, who's the only one in the house that doesn't play sports, I had to create a space of belonging for him amongst this sports family, right? And so I think that goes back to how are we creating these safe spaces for our children to be who they want, who they need to be, or who they are, um, and how do we help to support that as they grow? Yeah, I think I think about this sometimes when I get hooked in this th- thought of, oh, I want them to have all the opportunities. I want them to be a certain way. I have to kind of let go of that and have a little acceptance around it and realize, you know, that that's coming from a place of fear or something like this and oh, yes. just worrying about them and to think, I just don't want them to feel like they have to earn my love, that they have to work really hard or be good at sports or get straight A's to be loved just to feel like they belong even if you know they're not perfect in every possible way in fact that's especially what makes them unique exactly yes and I think that's something we have to make sure we're continually conscious of like we have to do the, the reflection on that every day like did I show up in a way which is pure radical love or did I show up in a way that I'm putting my own ego first like So I think just that idea of reflecting on that question each day really helps us to kind of mitigate some of the pressure that we may be, not intentionally, but that we may be putting on our kids. Yep. Well, let's move a little bit into social justice parenting and kind of dive in specifically to how to do that and what that means, starting very broadly, what is social justice parenting? What are we talking about here? Yeah, social justice parenting is really kind of uh, this intentional and purposeful way that we want to raise children to be more compassionate and kind, Um, raising kids to be conscious about uh, leaning into activism um, and teaching our kids to create these spaces of belonging um, for people outside of our families. So it's just an intentional and purposeful way of showing up to really raise children who will um, be change agents uh, for the next generation. Oh, that's such a great definition of it. So many elements to that. Why do you think that some parents, even maybe they have really good intentions, they're they're well-meaning, kind people, but so often they're afraid to go there. They're maybe afraid to talk to their kids about social justice issues. Why do you think that sometimes this is a difficult thing for parents to do? I think, and this is, I think this is what my book two is going to be on really this idea of fear, fear-based parenting. It's, it's, it's why a lot of things are going on in our world right now. Right. I think people, people are fearful, fearful of things that are unknown. Right. Uh, they're fearful of maybe losing control or power, especially when they don't know the answers. A lot of, a lot of adults don't want kids to see that they don't know the right answers. Right. Um, I think parents have their own fears, anxieties, and maybe childhood traumas that keep them from engaging in heart conversations and really kind of leaning in to this idea of social justice parenting with their children. Um, I think sometimes parents are afraid that their kids are going to ask them questions that they don't, they don't know the answer to. And if we are raised in our childhood is was based on kind of this power structure with parents and, and children. Um, trying to change that power structure sometimes is difficult. Um, I know I was raised a lot. My dad was very firm in 
what he says goes. Like we didn't get a lot of less discussion as kids in, in my household. Um, and I didn't want that for my kids because I remember what that felt like not to like be able to say my opinion. And so I think sometimes this trying to shift the way that we were raised to, to how we want to parent is sometimes hard. Um, and sometimes you don't know what to do. So I really think the idea of social justice parenting is really the antidote to this fear-based parenting. I think the more we really want to just protect our children and not having these conversations, you are really unintentionally leaving a lot of other kids un- unprotected. And so I think the idea of social justice parenting is thinking about everybody's children as your children, right? What I'm doing in my home, how is that impacting the kids who are not in my home? And so I think what I'm trying to do with social justice parenting is have us answer the question, what is right for the whole and not just for my my kids and my family? And so sometimes that does look scary, but I think if we can start to parent from a place of uh, the village and not just our particular kids, we will start to kind of open up and be more intentional about the conversations we have with our children, being more intentional about having our kids um, invite diversity and and, and into their own lives and um, creating spaces for that in our homes and our conversations that we have with our children. It's like going beyond yourself and your individual child and going beyond that to the bigger humanity out there in the world and trying to raise kids that are going to be compassionate toward, you know, it's not just about your, your own child having success in the world. It's about making the world a better place, starting with your child. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yes. Can you say a little bit more about why it's so important? I just want to emphasize this again, why it's so important for all parents to have a role in social justice, even, you know, privileged families that maybe aren't directly in an oppressed or marginalized group? Yeah. And I think the idea of social justice has gotten a bad rap lately, right? I think it's oh, used yeah. more as it's like a weaponized word. Yes, exactly. Yes. yes, yes. And when we get to the, like, I even get people like, why would you name your book that? Like it's people are not going to read it because of the name of the 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 title. And I'm like, you know, social justice to me is about making sure everybody has opportunities um, to to live their best life. It's like, how do we argue with that? Um, When when I talk to kids about the definition of social justice, um, I I talk about, you know, it's about that making sure that everybody who's hungry has food. It's about making sure that everybody who needs a place to stay um, has shelter. Um, it's about making sure everybody has opportunities so that they can learn, they can grow, they can earn money, and they can live their best life. I mean, that's really what social justice really is. And I think if we look at it and strip it down to its basis, basics, um, we should all be on board with that. We should all be excited about the idea of raising children who will make sure that there's a lot of love and there's a lot of food and, and places for like unhoused people are taken care of. Those are like really the basic things that, that um, social justice is really about. And that's really what social justice parenting is about really raising our children so that they're not just nice human beings, but they're nice human beings 
who are willing to do the work to make sure that everybody has um, opportunities to grow and that there's um, there's justice in the in the world. And I and I think um, if we look at it from that, just from a human lens, um, it's something that we all should be on board and feel good about doing. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between being a good person? I have, I'm using air quotes here, yeah. quote, good person and being quote pro justice, um, because I think this is a really important point, you know, that a lot of people out there are, you know, it's not like you're a, wait, well, hold on. How do I say this? A lot of people out there, again, they, they might be well-meaning. They, they don't want, you know, the world to be this, terrible, racist, homophobic, sexist place um, in theory, but then they're also maybe a few steps short of being pro-justice. So what's the difference and, and, and how can people move toward that? Yes, that's a great question. I, I think if I had to sum it up in one word, it would be action, right? So the difference between really a good person and being somebody who's pro-justice is really the action that you do. And I think when we're raising our kids to be good people, I, I almost think it's like the safe thing to do, right? It, who, who, who's going to argue with that? Who's going to argue with it's a, it's, it's a good thing to, to raise good people. And I think that's when you have to push through fear uh, because it's, we, we all want to believe we're raising good people. And I think everybody is on board with that, but I think being a good person is sometimes more passive um, and I think if you are trying to raise children who are pro-justice, it really will require us to um, be more plugged in on the realities that are going on in the world and how they impact your family, how it impacts other people's family. Uh, raising kids who are pro-justice also means that you're raising kids who are more courageous and more active in um, standing up for other people. And I think... Uh, what I often say is raising good people is uh, teaching kids to do no harm. But when you're raising pro-justice children, you're teaching kids to intercede when harm is done. So those are, it's like raising the allies, the activists, the agitators, the anti-racists. That's, those are the kids that you're raising when you're raising pro-justice children. So they're the kids who are going to stand up for others um, and really be uh, change makers in the world. Um, so I think raising good kids is great. It's a great start, but it's not enough if we really want to change the trajectory of some of the things that are going on in the world. I have this memory of grad school. I had a really good diversity class at one point when I was in my clinical training. And I remember going into that class kind of a little arrogant thinking like, well, I'm not I'm not racist. I'm a good person. Like I want to learn about this, but I don't think it really applies to me. And then kind of going through the stage of like a really hard look inward and thinking, Oh yes, this does apply to me and I'm not doing enough. And I have not given this enough, uh, you know, consideration in my own life and just what a shock that was to me. Cause I kind of went into it. I think where a lot of people do is thinking like, well, I, I think racism is bad. I'm not, one of those people, but to kind of recognize that there is a difference between taking action and also really, you know, trying to tune into it more. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, some of the, the anti-racist scholars, you know, kind of identify that 
that idea of that there there's no um I'm not not a not racist you either uh racist or anti-racist right and there's not really something in between so if you're doing nothing is it really helping to stop racism or is it really kind of uh, allowing racism to continue um I know um Beverly Tatum talks about uh, she uses the the example uh, if you're like on a con- conveyor belt, like in the airport, if you are going with the flow of the conveyor belt and it's helping you get ahead, that's kind of like an example of racism that you're using every opportunity you, you have to uh, put yourself in the front and, and not worry about other people. And then um, not racist is that, uh, wait, let me back up. Um, racist is that you are walking with the conveyor belt so that you are using it to get ahead. You're moving forward and you're kind of passing everybody. If you're not racist, you're just on the conveyor belt moving forward. Like you're not actively walking, but it's still moving you. Um, and you still have an advantage. And then anti-racist would be the people who will actively turn around and run backwards on this conveyor belt that's going in one direction and that you're trying to, to undo what's already being done. So that's kind of like a visual of these kind of three ideas. Um, And uh, Kendi says, you know, there is no in-between. You're either racist or you're anti-racist. And so I think it's something that we all should think about where we positioned and um, how do we want to raise children in that that space? What's our responsibility to our, our, our family, our children? And what's our responsibility to just kind of human, human, humanity. Uh, Well, and I think even just using a, telling yourself something like, well, I'm not racist. It's like, it's a cop out. You know what I mean? It's like a way of, of letting yourself off the hook from having to do anything. And it's really not okay. (laughs) You know, it just is not that dichotomy is a false one because we're so right in it. Right. I want to actually, can I just give an example of this good person versus pro-justice based on a podcast episode I had with Dr. Erin Andrews? This was a couple, well, several years ago. She's a disability advocate. And we talked about, and that that episode I would really encourage people to listen to because we talk about disability as a form of diversity where there's a lot of stigma and it's often very much overlooked, I think, as a social justice issue. and she talked about with kids, sometimes we have this like, well, be nice. Like, don't talk about it. You know, if you see someone in a wheelchair and a lot of kids aren't, they're not even around necessarily people with disability. I mean, they probably are, you know, neurodiversity or other di- differences between people. But I think sometimes parents have almost this like, be nice, don't talk about it kind of vibe with children. And it sort of shuts down the conversation, but it doesn't really teach them about inclusivity, right? It's like, it becomes this like bad word we're not supposed to talk about. And that's actually not pro-justice at all. That's shutting the conversation down. Absolutely. Yes. And I think, I think I I can it to it it from, from a race perspective to the colorblind theory, right? That we we're all, we love everybody, you know, everybody's a good person, you know, that kind of thing. So I think that, um, when we talk about all of the ways that we are diverse and certainly uh, disabilities, abilities is, is one of them. Um, we, we have to allow kids to lean into their natural curiosities um, because it really does 
it changes us, right? Because we get to see who our kids are and the questions that they're asking. It gets us to learn more about topics and um, issues. Um, and then it, it also gets them to trust their own voice, right? To, to, to know that these questions are important, to find answers, to grow, to see the humanity in others. And when we shut that down, we're teaching our kids that these, these conversations are taboo. We don't talk about them. We don't talk about those people. Um, and it, it does more separating than it does bringing us together. Absolutely. It becomes like a taboo or something that's, like you said, colorblind, like, oh, we don't see that. We don't talk about it. And it just really minimizes the impact in a really unhelpful way. Yes. Yeah. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So a lot of your book is really goes through the qualities of a pro-justice home and kind of dives into a lot of examples and just some of the ways in which you might make your home more, your family more pro-justice. And people can read the book, I think, to really dive into that. But could you give just sort of an overview summary of some of what you consider to be the main qualities of a pro-justice home? Yeah, I I think... If, if I had to just name a couple of things, I would say open dialogue is really important, right? That you're having the conversations, that they are embedded in, in who you are as a family, um, that kids are able to ask questions openly and honestly. I think valuing each other, right? Knowing what each person has to contribute to to the house, to the world, right? And honoring and valuing those things in each person, um, seeing each person for who they are, Um and um, creating safe spaces around that is really important. Um, I also think if you're trying to create a pro-justice home, you are active in the things that are important to you so that you are um, showing up in spaces, you are um, doing reading with your kids, you are you know, you may not be at the protests or the rallies, but you are writing the letters, you are collecting the canned goods, whatever that is, but you're showing your kids that you are making a difference and um, you are engaged in the things that are important in the world. But I think really the key qualities are really honoring each other, creating space for each other, allowing children to use their voices in the home um, so that, that when they go out into the world, they're comfortable doing that. And I think when we don't create spaces for kids to have those conversations to say their opinions. Um, we are, we really are shutting them down from really being being more active in the world. There's this philosophical approach to parenting you keep 
mentioning that I want to highlight, which is about allowing kids to have a voice. And there's always going to be a power hierarchy between parents and kids, just the nature of the relationship. But instead of thinking as the parent's job is to control the children or to be in charge of them, it's like letting the children have a voice, treating them with respect, even though they're younger and less powerful. Yeah, I I think that is so important because um, we have to create a safe space to be for them to be able to practice using their voice. Now, it doesn't mean that everything that they say they're going to get. So, you know, we we have the dialogue. What do you think? What do you think? I understand. I'm listening to you. I hear you. Um, Ultimately, thank you for all everybody's opinion. I think, I, you know, I'm going to make the final decision on this because I think as, a, as, a, as somebody who's had more experience in this space, this is what we're going to do. Like, right. It's not always that you're, you're listening to your kids in terms of the follow through, but you're listening to your kids um, in a way that it allows them to know that their voice matters, that they have an opinion. It's worth saying because um, and I think about too, I think about especially our girls, right? When they're not able to kind of use that their voices in our homes, when they get out into the work world, when they get out into the when they start going through school, we we know we live in a society that really shuts girls down. I mean, there's studies after studies, even in schools, teachers not calling on girls, more boys in STEM programs. Um, when girls are raising their hands, boys are shouting out the answers and the teachers are acknowledging the boys shouting out. So we, we need to create spaces in our home where our kids know how to use their voices, know that their voices matter, um, and they recognize the power in using their voices and if we're not allowing them to do that um, in our homes and on a regular basis, when they're out in the world and they're being, they're not standing up for themselves and we can't figure out why are they not standing up for themselves, we really have to reflect on how, how they were able to kind of stand up for themselves in our own homes. And so I think it's really important if you're trying to create kids who are, who know how to set boundaries, kids who know how to self-advocate, Kids who can stand up for others, right, um, be upstanders. It starts with them having that voice in, in, in our homes about small things even, you know, even like what's for dinner. Why do you think this is? we should have this for dinner? So it doesn't have to be anything life shattering, but it's just a continuous uh, process of allowing kids to use their voices. Mm. And what about how might you start a conversation? Actually, let's get a little concrete here in terms of conversations about things like racism, sexism, you know, homophobia, mm-hmm. transphobia in the world. Um, and I don't know if you have one in particular, one particular issue you want to use to highlight this, but, you know, just I think often people will read and care, but not know, like, what do I say? What kind of words do I use with my kid to start these conversations? Do you have any any very concrete strategies? And I know it's probably going to look different from like a four-year-old to a 17-year-old. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think the first thing, no matter whether they're four or 17, the first thing you do is you ask them questions. What do you know about this already, right? So you want them to start to ha- to lead the conversation in some ways because you want to know what they already know. You want to know where to start. You want to know what things that you may have to redirect. Uh, there may be some stereotypes that the child may hold from social media, their friends or whatever that you have to undo. 
Um, and so I would start off asking them questions, basic open-ended questions. What do you already know? Tell me more. Um, where did you learn that? So you can get some idea of where the information is coming from. And so I think once you ask them open-ended questions about a certain topic, like the example that I'm going to use is uh, the killing of the 19 people, the 19 kids in Texas, right? I started off asking my kids, what have you heard already? Um, how do you, how does that make you feel? What do you think happened? So I wanted to know where their heads were first before I started giving them what details I thought they needed to have. And again, like you're saying, if my five-year-old, which I don't have, but if my five-year-old was asking these questions, the way that I respond would be very different from my my 17-year-old, obviously, yes. But I think the, the premise is to always find out where they are and where they stand in it first before you start to give more information. The other thing that I would say, too, is not to wait until you have all your ducks in a row. Yes, you wanted to have some research done. You want to have some ideas, but you don't have to have it all figured out. One of the, I think, most powerful things that we can do is to figure things out together with our kids. It empowers them to be researchers. It um, shows them that they don't have to have all the answers as they grow up, right? And that they show you that the imperfections and the vulnerability that you you sh- you have is something that they can also use as characters for themselves growing up. Um, so I would encourage you to ask the questions and start the conversations even before you think you're really ready because it's in those moments that the most powerful learning and healing really between you and your kid can really happen. Um, And so I I would also, I guess the other thing that I would say when having these hard conversations is to not dummy it down so that it makes, it doesn't make sense for the kids, right? Using real key terms, um, whether it's scientific terms you know, I'm thinking about body parts, right? We want to use real body part terms. Um, when we're talking about racism, we want to use some of the some w- words that really resonate with our kids, so they know what what they mean when they see them in the real world. Um, obviously, you want to be very sensitive when you're doing it. You want to try to connect it back to something they already know. Like, remember when we talked about X, Y, Z last week, or when we read in the book that this happened to that character? That is what's really going on in real life right now. Um, and so, just so they have something to kind of connect uh, what they already know with where you're getting ready to take them. So that's always helpful if you can do that. Even if it's something like death uh, with young kids, you could talk about something that they saw, like a, a bug on the side of the road or something small that died that, so that, that you may have had a conversation about what death looks like. So if it happens to somebody that they know or a pet, they already at least know kind of like the life cycle so that they can connect something bigger to something smaller that, that you've already talked about. Um, so those are some of the things that I would suggest when having hard conversations with our kids. But I think you dive in even when you're uncomfortable with it, right? Even if your fear tells you not to, because what I tell say to my clients or people who are taking my courses you, by you not saying it, it does not mean the kids are not learning it, right? Somebody is teaching your kids about these hard topics and you have to decide whether 
your fear um, is greater than your kids learning about something from your values, your perspectives, your um, radical love and your kindness? Or are you okay with the world teaching your kids about these things, wherever they're getting it from? And so I think if you look at it from the lens that they're learning it, I mean, studies show that kids are learning stuff at three and five and seven. They're, they're, they, they already are making up their mind, you know, their natural way of trying to create categories and their, uh, and their minds are putting things together that are not necessarily right. And so you're leaving that to chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, opening up the door for hard conversations. They, my fourth grader home, came home with a question. I will not reveal the actual question on this interview, but I was a little shocked that fourth graders were talking about such a thing. It was sex related. And yes. I was just a little panicked for a second. And then I said, I am so glad she can talk to me about this because she's hearing it and it is out there. And I think that just having that stance that your kids feel like they can come and talk to you, they won't always probably, but that to me, that's very important. Just, I want them to know they can come to me with these questions. And I think that goes back to that belonging and safe spaces, right? If we're creating those safe spaces in our homes early, allowing our kids to have voice early when those things get hard or they have those tough questions, they already feel safe and know they can come to you to talk and that they will be heard. Um, and so you're setting, you're setting yourselves up for those very tough conversation that comes in their tweens and their teens when um, these issues are really kind of life altering, right? The decisions that they make in their lives and I, it says to me, Debbie, that you've made, you've created safe spaces for your daughter to be able to come home to say, hey, this is what I've heard. Tell me about it. Let's talk about it. Um, and, I, and I think that's what you should lean into, that I've created safe spaces for my daughter to have these hard conversations. Yeah. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing my best here. Um, what would you, how would you respond? Okay, I was trying to think of a personal example of this, and I have one. How would you respond if your child says something that you have a little cringy, like, ooh, that's, so here's the example is that this was just a few days ago. One of my daughters was talking about the hair of her black friend in her class. And I just had this moment of, you know, that's a very racially charged, racist charged issue, I think. And actually, what she said was fine. It was just factual about, you know, braiding her hair and how long it takes and just based on a conversation. But I remember sitting there thinking, where's this headed? You know, how do I explain to her that maybe something she just said had a racist tone to it or had you know, was an issue that was socially loaded. So if your child says something like that, what, what advice do you have for how to respond? Yeah. Uh, okay. And this is again, too, where you have to do a little bit of educating of yourself too. I, I would say, I would have said, um, as she talked about the hair or the braiding of the hair, I would have said something like, did you know that there are some places, some schools, some jobs that won't allow her to wear her hair like that, uh, she'd get fired or not be accepted into a school. Um, why do you think that that people care about the way that her hair looks if it's braided? Like I would have started conversations about some realities of black hair. Um, and um, I would then say, what, 
you know, why do you think that is? Um, did you know also that like the military wouldn't allow people to wear dreadlocks until last year? There's a new law now. Um, there's a new law that's out that's called the um, Crown Act. Did you know about the Crown Act? Um, let's look it up. You know, let's look up the Crown Act and see what that says and who that's for and why do you think that that was put into place? Like, so I would use it as a way to kind of educate about what's going on around the world about black hair um, and how it's used as a way to discriminate, which is why it's part of why it's racially charged. So I think um, it could be a place where you can both kind of educate your own selves as a group, as a, as a collective around. Um, But I would, I would certainly kind of lean into some of those, that idea so that she could see the connection between why it could be racially charged and why it's not just like talking about hair. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I can see now that I missed an opportunity here for a okay. deeper conversation. <laughs> it's never too late. It's never that's too right. late. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. It's like using a statement that a child makes or a comment that they makes or something as a chance to dive deeper into it. Again, that fosters more conversation instead of like a shutting down, like, don't say that. You know what I mean? Because that's what I was like conscious of not wanting to do in that moment is I didn't want to be like, oh, you can't talk about that. I didn't want to like, again, like with the disability thing, I didn't want it to become like a, you can't touch that topic. Yeah, I I think that's, that's really important for us as parents to be conscious of that we're not shutting down conversations because we're uncomfortable with it, right? Um, That it really is a a way for us to try to lean in to those harder conversations because it, it it expands the way our kids show up for others. It it just, it really does. It just teaches them um, about the narrative and stories of other people. And that's how we start to love and embrace people for who they are. The more we learn about who, the more we learn about our differences uh, and then those things that tie us together. And I was going to say that um, I think one thing that we underestimate as parents is it's never a missed opportunity. It's an opportunity kind of to, to, to uh, circle back. Right. So I would go, I would, I would go back and say, remember last week when you brought up the question about your friend's hair uh, and I, I was thinking about it and trying to figure out how to answer. And let me tell you why it was a hard answer for me, you know, based on what's going on in the world and talk about what you were feeling at that moment. Um, But since then, let me tell you what I've been thinking about, you know, and then you can come back and say, let's look up the crown act and why that is. Let's look up the um, dreadlocks or any hair issues for blacks in the military and why it wasn't there. You know, like some of the, let's, uh, you could re- just Google uh, black hair in private schools, like how many schools won't allow black girls to braid their hair uh, because it's out of uniform, you know? So I think not knowing the answer at the time is fine, but I think also closing that loop and circling back to say, you know, I've learned more now, or I had time to think about your 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 question, and this is how I would answer that now. Um, I think mm-hmm. it's, it's really, really great for for one extending the conversation and two and teaching our kids that you know you don't you don't always get it right the first time and it's okay to say i didn't get it right the first time but but i n- now i know better and i know more yeah i love that it's like a do over when you panic i think there's topics that we kind of panic about for me one of the ones is when my kids 
bring up issues related to body image and body size and shape and that kind of thing. And I always so want to like get it right, you know, that I, I panic. And then I think you can always kind of go back later and maybe share your own experience or talk about, you know, fat shaming or, or something yeah. like that in a way that just opens that dialogue again. <laughs> Cause I think it's just such a yes. topic. It's like, and, we're really coming and sometimes out from our you own. can say, you know what? I, I need to think on that for a minute. Like, there's a lot of things running through my head right now. And I want to be able to answer this in a way uh, that it reflects what I really feel and what I really know at this time. Give, give me a couple minutes, you know, um, or I, I need a day on this. You know, if it's something <clears throat> like that, I think that's okay too. But the key is making sure you circle back. But I think it's okay yeah. to say, you know, I need a minute on this one. This is, this is a very curious question and it's a very important question and I want to try to get some of what I'm saying to you organized in my mind so that I can say, I can respond in a way that is representative of what I'm feeling, especially when the kids are older, that. right? Yeah. Yeah. Really giving it the time and space to give it a thoughtful answer yes. instead of just a knee-jerk response. Yeah. Well, one more question. Um, this is a big one, so I don't know. Well, <laughs> I don't know what your thoughts are, but sometimes I worry that people who would take the time to listen to a podcast episode like this may be already interested in social justice, maybe already having these conversations. And as you said, it's become so politicized that I think a lot of people will not come near it and will not do it. Do you have any thoughts about how we might, we, you know, you, me, the listeners, people who care about this, like, how can we bring other people into this conversation who might be afraid to talk about it or not just afraid of it, they might have assumptions about what this means? Yeah, I think sometimes you have to meet people where they are uh, in order for them to move them forward, right? So this goes back to this creating safe space. Sometimes, and this is a, this is a really tough kind of tightrope to walk, to, to walk. Sometimes we have to listen to other people before we can, um, before, before they're able to hear what we're saying. Like sometimes we have to let people kind of spew out the things that are on their minds for them to say what they feel and why. Um, and sometimes that's once you are actively listening and compassionately listening to that, even if the views are completely opposite of your own, people still need a space where they feel like they're, they're being heard. Um, once we can meet people where they are and hear what they're saying, um, then it's more, it's, there's more of a chance that they would then be able to hear what you're saying. Um, and I think we can't move people in, in any direction if we're not able to, to listen with compassion and love. Um, and then to meet with the, meet them where they are to maybe move them one step. So like, I'm show you a couple examples. I um, sometimes we get feedback from other black activists that say I'm not being kind of hard enough, right? That I'm, I'm giving too many passes that I'm um, kind of um, soft, you know, but I, my thought on that is, especially as an educator, right? As a mom, but as an educator, my job is to teach. Like that is what I was put on earth to do in whatever spaces, where, whatever that looks like. Um, 
And I, if I am not open to teach and to support people who are trying to go through the journey, then I'm doing really my own kids a, a disservice by saying that they need to learn on their own. Like, I think there's conversations that should be had with people who don't agree with you in order to kind of find a middle ground. Um, that's the only way we can kind of start to get rid of the divide that we're seeing so often um, in our country. And then this, this example is kind of like a, a an a actual practical example. So I was uh, this one, when I, I think I was going on the, um, the good morning America show. Uh, and I put on my personal, uh, I don't know, it was my personal Facebook page, maybe my social justice, I don't know, one of them. Wish me luck. I'm going on live, right? And so people were, you know, wishing me luck, whatever, whatever. And then there's one gentleman said, um, this is basically saying, this is black racism. This is, uh, you, you, don't, you get to tell me what I need to say to my kids. Um, if I was trying to tell you what to say to your kids, you know, I, I would be shut down and just like, really just kind of. And so my response to him was, thank you for taking the time to, to, to respond. I, I see this is a really important topic to you. Um, here are my thoughts. I think we all need to be talking to our kids. It's the only way that we're going to change the world is that we get to know each other. I want my kids to know your kids as much, you know, whatever. So I just kind of unpacked that for him. Um, and then his next, and then of course, all of the people who know me were like, why would he say that to you? Well, you know, um, I can't believe you responded to him that way. And then his response back basically was like, thank you for your kind respond. Um, that helped me understand. Like, so we were on different camps, but maybe not so much, right? So sometimes it's just this idea of people needing to be seen and need to be heard. Um, creating a safe space, even if we think the people are not in our camps, I think is really important. It's the only way that we're going to be able to hear each other's story. Um, so I think meeting people where they are, allowing people to, to explain why they feel the way they do, um, and saying thank you for um, explaining to me. And then, you know, you can then open up and say, I hear what you're saying about this. Can I tell you how I feel? Um, and so I think, again, that's opening that dialogue for people to be able to hear each other and see each other, um, even when it looks like we're on different sides. Um, I think, again, going back to the human element, we all want to feel like we belong. We all want to feel like we've heard and we're seen and we're valued. Um, and I think if we, we do that, we can get further than, than, we, than we think. Well, Tracy, you are really walking the talk here. I just have this sense that you are living this in your own life and radiating kindness to everyone around you. And as an educator, you're doing your job because I have learned so much from you, even during the course of this conversation and from your book. And I'll just point listeners again to your book, Social Justice Parenting. It has a much deeper dive into this and the qualities of social justice parenting and resources. I mean, books, actions you can take. It's just a terrific resource, I think, for any parent who cares about this. And how can people find you online, people who want to follow you and learn more? I think um, most of the interaction happens on Instagram um, at social justice parenting. 
and we call it the village, the social justice parenting village there. Um, so that would be a great place to start kind of digging into some of the things that we do and trying to create a uh, safe environment for us to ask the hard questions and to tackle some of the hard issues. And then also uh, my website, if you have any questions or want to contact me directly, uh, which is also uh, socialjusticeparenting.com. Wonderful. Well, I'm so grateful to you for your work and for joining me today, Tracy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you're a Psychologist Off the Clock listener and you love gaining wisdom on living well from good books, join our new Psychologist Off the Clock book club. We're going to be meeting the second Thursday of each month at noon Eastern Standard Time in the U.S. Book club members will be invited to attend monthly book meetings with our team, join our private Facebook group, you'll get a monthly newsletter, and you'll get to vote on upcoming books that we'll discuss. To join, all you need to do is become a Psychologist Off the Clock book club Patreon supporter. Go to Patreon and search for Psychologist Off the Clock or you can link to it through our offers and events page at offtheclockpsych.com. We hope you join us. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on social media and purchase swag from our merch store by going to our website at offtheclockpsych.com slash merch. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com. 